Hey, it's your host, Charlotte Chipperfield, and welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast, the show that inspires you to think holistically about yourself, your business, and your marketing to ignite the impact you desire to have on the world. We'll learn what it takes to be seen and heard in the digital space from leading experts and myself as a marketing executive and the former founder of Chipperfield Media. Get ready to own your marketing by exploring the intersection of purpose and proactive marketing to move your business forward. Welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast. Today, Kevin Nichols joins us, who is the founder of the Social Engineering Project based in Oakland. The Social Engineering Project is funded by Google and Microsoft and is a social impact venture with Stanford University, which is designed to address the lack of diversity in the tech industry. Prior to founding the Social Engineering Project, Kevin has worked with some of the top international law firms and was a senior diversity leader at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Kevin has been featured on LinkedIn's Hall of Fame, Yahoo's blog, In the Examiner, CNN Money, Rutgers, MarketWatch, and The Wall Street Journal. Today, we're going to discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, and social impact. It's a true honor to have you with us today, Kevin, so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Absolutely. I'm excited to dive into this conversation, but I would love for you to maybe tell everyone a little about yourself, your background, and what you do. Well, in a nutshell, uh, I'm coined as the social engineer. Um, That's a funny way of my career um, being eclipsed to that, but I started out as an engineering major in college and uh, after an internship at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, I decided to pivot from engineering, thinking that I wanted to do civil rights law. But my boss there actually ran the affirmative action diversity program. So I ended up going and doing my first stint and doing diversity work in the early 90s. Started working at Morrison & Forrester, a big law firm in San Francisco. Um, and after a couple of trials, decided I didn't want to practice law either. But what I ended up doing was falling in love with pro bono work, doing some of the civil rights things that I was interested in, as well as starting the diversity program at MOFO in the late 90s. Since then, I worked uh, in the legal industry for about 12 years, working in big law, focusing on technology and engineering and starting diversity programs and law firms. The last law firm where I worked at was Holland and Knight. I chaired the diversity program on the West Coast and uh, eventually started my own consulting firm and uh, got involved actually in the technology side of the practice of law. So I did e-discovery for a number of years as well. And now I'm the founder, president, CEO of the Social Engineering Project, which is an organization I started six years ago to get young kids interested in traditional STEM. So um, the name, the social engineer, comes from a quote by Charles Hamilton Houston, who said, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. So technically, I'm not a lawyer or an engineer, but the way that I use the quote is, you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Mm, yes, I love that. And what a wealth of background you have. I mean, that's so amazing. And I think that quote is so powerful and applicable to so many different industries and what the world needs more of right now. So I absolutely love that dedication. And so I'd love to talk more about the social engineering project. So talk maybe a little bit more about that mission and, and how you are getting kids interested in the field of STEM. Well, I can't speak about the organization without mentioning its co-founder, Dr. Brian Brown. He's a professor at Stanford University. He teaches teachers how to teach science education to underrepresented students of color. 
we actually are high school buddies and um, I actually didn't intend to start the social engineering project. It was a labor of love only because of my friend from high school. But um, his goal really was to expose as many young kids interested in traditional STEM, so math, science, chemistry, physics, and engineering at a young age, hopefully getting them to pursue it in high school and college and major in something STEM related and eventually work in in the tech industry. So because of the fact that I'm in tech and participated in a lot of those programs growing up, uh, we decided to start this organization and for the past five years have focused our efforts on reaching students, not only here in the Bay Area, but all over the country. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think so many organizations and companies are often founded from a labor of love um, and seeing that need as well to help serve their communities. So definitely very relatable there. (laughs) Uh, I'd love to hear maybe like if we dive into a little bit more, what are some of the most contributing problems to the lack of diversity in tech? Well, there are a number of factors. Number one, I think that the tech industry kind of looks unevenly at where it gets diverse talent. So a lot of times, and this isn't just unique to the legal industry, but a lot of industries look at Ivy League or top tier schools to recruit from. And a lot of those schools are from people's alma mater. So if they didn't go to that school or don't have a connection or affiliation with it, they somehow think that the students that are coming from them are incapable of doing the work. So with that stigma, it makes it difficult for students to break into that cycle. Number one, uh, so that's number one. Number two, the tech industry feels as though you have to have worked in a tech company in order to be able to have street cred or legitimacy in the tech industry. Uh, same with philanthropy. I couldn't become a, I couldn't work in a nonprofit organization until I worked in a nonprofit. So I started my own. <laughs> you know, people that want to do this kind of work shouldn't have to, you know, be in the particular role in order to have these skills that are transferable. Um, so nevertheless, uh, that that's another thing. And then lastly, with, with regards to Um, specifically black talent, it's, you know, we have historically black colleges and universities where people that are actually looking for diverse talent will go, but they're almost as if they're the only Ivy League, quote unquote, type of schools to recruit from. So your Howard, Hamptons, um, Morehouse and Spelman. But there are other black colleges that are out there that have just as many black students getting higher level degrees and are capable of doing the work. So really we have to get rid of this mentality about where people go to school and what they're capable of accomplishing and achieving based upon that solely. Absolutely. And do you find that that stigma of recruiting from Ivy Leagues, does that come from larger corporations or are you seeing like smaller companies making more of an effort lately or in the last few years to really recruit for more of a diverse background of schools that aren't Ivy League? I believe that there are a number of people that are becoming diversity, equity, inclusion practitioners. And I believe there's enough people now stating that that's what they need to do. And so not only the tech industry, but all the other industries are starting to at least open up their eyes to the possibility of recruiting from someplace besides where they went or an Ivy League school. 
Um, but I do not believe that it's widespread. And I think that when it comes to actually um, numbers and statistics or, or metrics, I believe they would be a lot less than what I'm thinking that it would be. Mm. Okay. So I guess thinking about these contributing problems, you know, how are you working with the social engineering project to kind of create solutions specifically within tech to create more opportunities for DEI? Well, part of what I'm doing with the social engineering project, as well as what I'm doing at Berkeley lab is really changing the model of where people, you know, are capable of contributing to, um, and, what they're able to accomplish and achieve with their own, picking themselves up by their own bootstraps. So our goal really is to get, particularly with the social engineering project, to get students past math 1A, chemistry 1A, and physics 1A. In order to do that, we're, we're getting kids from middle school all the way up through high school to fall in love with science, chemistry, and physics, and engineering. And with that, we're not saying that they have to be a mechanical engineer or or electrical engineer or something like that, or computer science major. Our goal is to give them as many opportunities as possible until the model of going to college as the best route to become successful is no longer the case. Um, we feel as though our students have a lot more opportunities if they're able to major in something besides uh, social science. Uh, and the only way really to do that is if they're able to get past these prerequisites that keep them out and, uh, and open the door to other careers and other options that weren't necessarily available to them. And we know from data and research that um, black and brown students particularly are discouraged for participating in those types of subject matters. They're told that they're incompetent. They're told that they're not going to be successful or if they get poor grades, they're discouraged. So we are trying to combat that with um, exposing them to things that they wouldn't normally be exposed to. And then on, as an actual um, DEI topic for current workforce, you know, we're, I also advise places like Berkeley Lab on, you know, where to get PhD and high level physics talent from, you know, so uh, the problem doesn't exist just with youth and high school and college, but it's also postdocs and, and people that uh, feel as though you know, then all the HBCUs that are graduating more black students than all of the Ivy League schools combined are, you know, somehow incapable of being able to do the work or be productive in a, a laboratory setting. Right. Yeah. I love that idea of really kind of creating as many possibilities and opportunities for students. And I'm curious, is this something that you work in relation like closely with schools, or is this something that, you know, students need to come to you kind of outside of school in order to engage in that, in the STEM and falling in love with science? <laughs> well, if, if we had the sophistication and, and capacity building funding that we need, we probably would partner more with schools. We haven't had much success with that, unfortunately. So all of our programs are outside of schools. We, we focus primarily on weekends, evenings, or summertime. And we are, uh, we have, because of the pandemic, all of our programs right now currently are virtual. And so what that has done, on one hand, it's limited our bread and butter programs, which are in person, but it's allowed us the opportunity to expand our programs to network with students from all over the country through, through partnerships with organizations that have 
boots on the ground in various states that we wouldn't normally have access to. And then in hopes of leveraging that in the future to actually have boots on the ground in these places in the future. Yeah, that's wonderful. I know. I think that's been kind of the blessing and curse of COVID in a way is that it's definitely limited our time engaging one-on-one in person, but it has also opened up the opportunity for more people to connect virtually, which I think is also just an important piece of it because sometimes we can be so isolated and our own areas and our communities, which is really important. But I think there's definitely power in understanding how other people are addressing issues and making sure that there's access for everyone. And it can be really inspiring to engage at that level as well. And with that too, like as an individual that feels very passionate about this topic and engaging kids, is there a way for other people to get involved if they're not working with an organization? Certainly, you know, a lot of nonprofit organizations are struggling right now. Um, There was this big push around the George Floyd incident or uh, murder that occurred that rallied a lot of not only community activists, but corporations, um, various industries, including the tech industry, to want to get involved, etc. Those individuals wrote large checks to the organizations that they could think of, you know, so the Black Lives Matter, they were in tech, the Black Girls Code or other types of, you know, very reputable and easy to think of organizations. The more harder organizations to think of, you know, were kind of left out of that, unfortunately. And so um, a lot of some organizations have closed their doors or have gotten rid of a lot of programming. You know, we typically hire staff, we hire college students to run our science in the city camp at Stanford. And we hire tech professionals to work as um, counselors for our overnight camping conference. We have a three-day conference in the Santa Cruz mountains where we have tech companies come up and lead workshops on what they do for a living. And these individuals serve as mentors for the weekend. We haven't been able to do any of that with being in the pandemic. And so those particular opportunities to work for us are no longer there. We could use, you know, obviously a lot of organizations can use volunteers, sweat equity. We could also use um, company donations. A lot of companies offer through Benevity or other uh, United Way and other types of giving to nonprofit organizations to support organizations through their giving and matching programs. And then people can also talk to where we've actually had the most success of raising money anyway. It's not necessarily through philanthropy. It's through people who are in positions of power, maybe VP level um, at various companies that have budget that they want to support pipeline or they want to support marketing, et cetera, and will invest in us as a vehicle for that. So those were really great introductions and um, opportunities for people to get involved and work with us in the future. Yeah, those are all wonderful ways to get involved. Absolutely. And I'll definitely link to the website and have all that information in the show notes too, if anyone would like to check that out. And you brought up George Floyd's murder. And in 2020, alongside the pandemic, we did witness that along with sort of national conversation around Black Lives Matter. And so for me, now sitting here, you know, more than a year later, there is this sense of accountability that I've been thinking a lot about. And we did see, you know, companies and individuals investing, you know, donations like you just mentioned, but also in learning and reading. Um, There's also been a huge wave of hiring DEI directors and DEI commitment statements. And so I'm kind of curious from your kind of consulting perspective, 
you know, if a company has five employees or 500,000 employees, how do you really go about approaching a framework to stay accountable to what you've said you're, you know, you're committing to? And how do you really enact that for real change? Well, you know, that's a very complicated question. You know, a lot of people um, did, you know, do a lot. During that time, my phone was ringing off the hook when our funding literally stopped to zero, zero dollars the first six months in the pandemic. No one knew what was going on. But everyone was looking around, scrambling to uh, devise their Black Lives Matter statement, you know, or to figure out who to give their money to, to support, to, to, to appear to be woke, you know, in this environment. But uh, after that blew off, you know, it's really hard to find out, well, there is a fund, a lot of money went somewhere, who got it? And what did people do with it? Is the question that people ask. Whether you have five employees or 500,000 employees, the, the bottom line is you have to, uh, you have to be true to yourselves. You have to be authentic and you have to have uh, a value structure that is um, not only compassionate and empathetic, but uh, has that integrity of, okay, we said we're going to do this. Now what? You know, who is going to be accountable for this? And how do we make sure that this actually follows through? That is the question. Anyone can be that advocate or that person internally to do that. It's just a matter of who is going to do it. And, and that's the big question I think that needs to be answered. Do you find that it should be one dedicated person that's holding accountable? Or do you think every individual, like could it be worked into performance reviews or your thoughts on just the one? Because I feel like the one person right now is it's falling to that DEI director who is often a person of color or black and I also wonder, is that really the best route to take? Oh, well, definitely not. They're, they're not the person responsible. A lot of times these roles have very little um, power in the situation. They may have a chief title. Lots of the roles don't even report to the CEO. So, um, you know, that should tell you um, how the chief is valued. I've had companies say, hey, but they may not report to the CEO, but they go to head, head of HR and that's get better because this person does it. Yeah. Okay. However you rationalize that. But at the end of the day, you know, if you have a chief title, you should be in the C-suite and you should be reporting to the CEO. And that's what would show that you're really taking this seriously, but, but everyone should be accountable. Uh, people, there are mixed views of how accountable people should be should you require it on your performance reviews etc and i've looked at recent studies and, and articles that say that requiring dei creates the the opposite effect makes people not want to do it etc you know at this point we're we know that something needs to be done and um i think i, I can't recall where the source was but i just read or saw something the other day like within the last few days of a survey, I think it was online or social media, where a woman, a white woman and her, you know, an elderly white woman, maybe late 70s, asked a room of white people, you know, what, raise your hand if you would like to be a black person, 
<laughs> and the whole room <laughs> kept their hands down, you know, and, and, and it's just ironic that that's probably very honest. I mean, it's just no one, you know, people can identify or say that, you know, they want to see equality. They want to, to, you know, be an ally, et cetera, but no one really wants to sit in our shoes as far as being an African-American here in this country. So accepting that is one thing, but what you're willing to do about it is to be able to um, state the obvious, like, look, there are not enough black people here. You know, we need to be proactive in making that happen. I understand that there are, you know, rules or regulations or laws that say um, affirmative action doesn't exist, for example, here in California, which is a whole nother topic. But um, there's something needs to be done. If African-Americans after the census are 12 or 13 percent of the, the country and the, the, and the state, um, but represent two or three percent in technology, there's a problem. And it's not because they don't want to be there. They're not smart or educated, et cetera. Uh, so we just need to be realistic about um, what's going on and proactive in changing it. And that means, you know, investing in organizations that are bringing the pipeline there, partnering with institutions that are preparing those people to, with those degrees. And and investing internally in more than just lip service, but real dollars behind uh, the outcomes that they want to see occur. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really great, great insight and really thinking about the actions you're taking. And it's, it is about the individual and learning, but it's also about, yeah, who are you actually partnering with? How have you gone beyond the black square on social media and are really doing the work? And mm -hmm. I do agree that should come back to the CEO, you know, reporting to that. It doesn't matter again, if you have just a couple employees or, or a freelancer, I think always having that in mind and thinking about who you can partner with and not just who's in front of you because of yeah, when you went to school or, you know, your friend that looks like you recommended it, but really being proactive with that is very important. Mm -hmm. I agree also been thinking a lot about how tech really does touch just about every industry now. And, you know, from a marketing lens, in my perspective, you know, there's a lot more, you know, AI and advertising, for example. And, you know, there's not only companies, you know, kind of internally looking at their teams and committing to building a diverse workforce, but I'm also sitting with myself and questioning about, you know, how do you, with your marketing external messages, like how do you really answer the question of how can I create a more welcoming and inclusive messaging where everyone feels comfortable to be a part of our brand's community? Um, I'm all about community surrounding a brand. And so making sure that that welcome map really does mean everyone is welcome is something that's really important and part of my own integrity, but also part of how I feel value-driven marketing should be led. Uh -huh. And so I know you have a lot of experience with social networking. And so I would love to hear if you feel like there's individuals who are, you know, leading that way with marketing messaging to make sure everyone feels welcome. Yeah. You know, marketing and messaging is very important. And uh, it really, especially having ambassadors or evangelists of your company out there speaking on your behalf really amplifies the work that that you want to do. Sometimes it's the mission of the company. Uh, 
as well. But I think that some of my friends over at Gusto, um, I see a lot of, in Adobe I've recognized recently, some of my friends that work there have been highlighting some of the, the great things about their benefits, about um, how serious they are about um, and intentional they are about making people feel included. And um, because of that, you're automatically like those kinds of companies appear on your radar as far as wanting to see what they're going to do next. And then there are companies that I've heard that have had some challenges with things that people have left um, pretty rapidly from, et cetera, that um, may or may not, it may have the opposite effect, I'd, I'd say. But, but what I'd recommend as far as really tying your company's brand with its mission, um, because I think that that is essential. I think that one of, I'm obviously a super fan of LinkedIn. I've been uh, connected to the organization for a very long time, but I, I believe the, the mission is something about making sure all the, one of the 4 billion or whatever people on the planet have a job or something like that, something very basic like that. But if you can get, if you can connect to that and you come to work every day and you know your focus and your goal is to make sure that, you know, people are able to use what you're creating to feed their families and to um, improve their careers, et cetera, you've got to feel good about where you're working and where you're at, you know. And, and so tying that into everything you do from a recruitment and retention aspect of things really goes a long way. I know at Berkeley Lab, we have, um, we just recently had a stewardship summit and we focused on these stewardship values that the lab spent some time creating the last, I guess, um, six months or so that they're just rolled out. And one of the, the purposes of it really is to connect the employees to the lab's mission and to the values that are important, not just for the scientists, but everyone that works there. And, and so with the summit, it kind of cleared up some misunderstandings about what people thought, oh, this is just for the scientists. This doesn't really involve staff. And they're like, oh, actually, these things really do involve us. And then by doing that, you can feel connected to the work that's happening. So if you're in HR or if you're in finance, you don't really feel like you're connected to what's going on in the bigger picture of your company, but that your contribution allows a company to thrive and survive and to thrive thrive like i said so uh, understanding your point your place in that and how you're part of that continuum of keeping the company alive and thriving is very important absolutely you're speaking my language that's what uh, you know my approach with holistic marketing is all about is really spending significant amount of time making sure you're very clear on your mission and your values because I believe when you know that, like you said, it's like you're taking action from that place versus it being something that's a statement lost in the employee handbook. And, you know, you can quickly go off into too many tangents and be doing too many things that aren't actually helping you accomplish that mission. So to tie that back into the social engineering project, you know, our tagline is engineering a brighter future for diverse com communities of color. I mean, at the end of the day, um, if you can latch on to knowing that our work is going to help um, the careers and the actual families of 
underrepresented students of color and their families. You know, it, it's it's an easy mission to be a part of. And uh, and when you're volunteering or you're doing something, you can tie that into something bigger than you. And that's what the ultimate goal is. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So I guess if there's an entrepreneur listening that has a mission in mind or a passion, you know, a labor of love that they feel like really could help change the world and they're thinking about formalizing it, maybe it is a social impact focused business. As someone who has started businesses and worked in many different fields, I'd be curious if you have any advice for entrepreneurs who might be embarking on building a, a social impact business. Okay, well... You know, I don't necessarily want to be Debbie or or Donald Donner Downer, but you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship, you know, I am I'm a lot more uh, reserved with my advice about it. You know, at the end of the day, I believe that it takes a certain temperament, a certain type of person that wants to be an entrepreneur and that thrives at being an entrepreneur. You know, I, I started out my entrepreneurial endeavors recognizing at the time that I was a horrible employee. Yeah, same. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, but after getting over that hump, you know, of having, you know, that appetite fulfilled, you know, um, and especially depending upon what, where you're at and the state of your career, um, how old you are, um, starting a family and, and uh, getting married and settling down, that kind of stuff. Uh, you'll recognize quickly that, you know, every two weeks you have bills to pay or you have things that you need to do, you know, and to not be able to count on that is very unsettling as you get older. And so I always tell people that, you know, there's a lot of other risks and things that come in, that are involved with entrepreneurship. You know, I have you know, I have to look after my employees. I have to make sure that they eat and are able to take care of their families um, first. Uh, <laughs> I have to, uh, you know, there's a lot of liability. There's a lot of startup costs. There's a, you know, when we were a benefit corporation when we first started, when I got my first tax bill, I said, I need to become a nonprofit organization. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, uh, You'll learn things where um, you see the glitz and the glamour, but you don't see the hard work that goes into it and, uh, and the temperament and appetite you need to have in order to really be successful. I don't want to necessarily discourage people from wanting to become an entrepreneur because if it's in your blood, there's nothing that I'm going to say that's going to change that. But at the same time, you have to uh, know exactly what it is that you're trying to do whether it's being done and whether it's being done successfully or well. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I started the social engineering project kicking and screaming. Um, I only reason why I started it was when Google asked me, who do I write the checkout to? And I said, it's not going to be Kevin Nichols. So let me think of something. <laughs> right, so, <yes. laughs> so that was how this started. Um, but I, uh, like I said, the, the parts that people don't see, you know, oh, I want to start my own nonprofit organization. Like, well, do you, you want to have quarterly meetings? You want to get a board of directors? You want to get this? You want to get that? You've got to raise money. You got to do this. And then when you go into all of that that goes into it, it's like, well, do I really want to start a nonprofit? 
I was like, I don't want to discourage you, but I'm going to tell you what it really is about, you know, what it's really like. Uh, and getting a big check one minute and then not getting anything for a while, um, you have to learn how to put what you've killed and put it in the freezer for a rainy day. And a lot of times people aren't diligent enough and, and uh, I guess, organized and have enough. Uh, the word that I'm looking for is escaping me, but what you need in order to uh, um, be able to do that. Not everyone has that skill and it's not for everyone. Right. Absolutely. Like you said, I think if people have the appetite, they're going to go for it anyways. But I love that you gave such a real answer to that because there's so much, especially on social media, it's like, I quit my nine to five and now I make more money than I did in a year. And it's like, yeah, but you're not showing us like how you got to that point and if that's really true. And it can be very easy to get hooked into that glamorized side of it. But there is a lot that happens and you might get that big check and then all of a sudden you think that's the norm and it's not. Like you said, you've got to store it away for winter and and then the tax man shows up. So that's, that, that's <laughs> it's a real, real reality. That's every <laughs> direct message I get on Instagram from some Bitcoin trader from Peru. <laughs> Everyone says, you know, then DMs me, oh, I quit my job today. I make this amount of money. Yeah, great. Block, right. delete, you know, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, not everybody's yeah. doing if that. If only it were that simple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it does happen. You know, it's timing, uh, timing. And uh, I still, I've always been an entrepreneur when I had a day job. I never had the appetite to be, you know, I did it for five years with this organization. I'd recently joined Berkeley Lab full time in February, but they were a client of mine. I consulted for them. Um, for the past four years or so. Um, I had various clients that I consulted with because I just didn't, I could go with not having that security blanket of being able to pay my bills on time, provide for my family, et cetera. Um, so I'm not your traditional entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, that's similar to my story too. I had, you know, my company, Chipperfield Media for seven years. And then this past April took on a director of marketing role and I mean, man, my brain still doesn't understand that I get paid every two weeks. And I'm like, oh, this is what it's like. I'm like, this is way better. I don't know what I was doing for so long. I mean, I'm so glad I did it and I love it. And who knows, I might do it again in the future, but I would do things very differently for sure. Um, but it was kind of a well, PhD. Too, in, yeah. <laughs> so great. Yeah. And now I get to have What's fun that? and like work on other projects and still do my podcast. And it's like, it's not so intense because I'm not trying to make money off of everything and like squeeze out pennies so that I can like feed myself and pay rent. And yeah. And then I think part of the reality of like, am I ever going to retire if I continue to be an entrepreneur? And so it is... I think I'm going back to that mission a little bit, like you were talking about too. Like if you have a really strong mission and are so like so committed and have that clarity of what needs to happen while also being flexible on the road, you can be very successful, but it is going to be a, a rocky road at times. <laughs> so being able to navigate that and the good times are important. I teach a class all over the country called uh, the personal brand called you. And one of the things that I teach not only adults and professionals, but I also teach every student. It doesn't matter if it's fifth grade through high school. <laughs> I teach every student that, you know, if, uh, if you find your passion, you never work a day in your life. And, and so for me, 
you know, I'd be doing this anyway. So um, my goal really right now is after the pandemic is to find a full-time replacement for myself so I can just focus on doing what I do best, talking about the organization and raising money for it. You know, that's what I, I want to do uh, and get out of the, the, the programming aspects of things. Although programming is, is very easy because we're remote, but uh, it would be nice to be able to focus on that and not uh, a lot of the other stuff that I do. Right. Yes. Wear a few less hats. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'd love for you to tell everyone where they can connect with you further. Well, um, we're not hiding anywhere. Um, the social engineering project is definitely Googleable, but we, uh, you can look for us at uh, the social engineer.org. We're on Instagram, Facebook, everything like that. We just announced, uh, through a partnership we have with Tanashi, which is, a um, a computer manufacturing company. Uh, they give computers to our students who write the best essays who apply for our organization. So we had two, two recipients this year, got some computers and they just did a major push for that on our socials today. So follow us, you'll see that. But um, yeah, we're, um, we're everywhere. We're having a fundraiser coming up in, uh, in early November. So please stay tuned. You can join our website and join our newsletter um, so that you can get information about some of the events we have coming up. It's going to be a remarkable um, hour-long uh, virtual event. And uh, I actually have a fireside chat with Shelly Archambault, who's one of my mentors, um, talking about leadership and uh, ambition. Very cool. It's probably going to be amazing. Um, I will link to all of that in the show notes as well. And so I always close by asking my guests this question, and I would love to hear from you, Kevin, how does being intentional show up in your life or business? Well, being intentional is, I, I look at it as being synonymous with my brand. You know, at the end of the day, when someone says my name, I want it to mean something. So if I say that I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Or, and that you can count on me and that I'm reliable and dependable. And, and so I try to do as much as I can uh, to help other people. And I'm very intentional about that. I've chosen a career pathway that allows me to give back in a way that is intentional. And there are other things that I could be doing, but instead I choose to do this. And I think that other people should find out what they're being intentional about and allow that to be, uh, to speak for them. I shouldn't have to tell you what I'm intentional about. You should be able to gather it from what you see from what I do. Oof, I love that. That was so great. Wonderful answer. <laughs> well, Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. I think this was such a rich conversation, so many good ideas, things to think about, uh, keeping people accountable and really some good actionable steps too. So I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode, please subscribe to be the first to know when a new episode is available. 
And if you really love this episode, please rate and review the podcast so that other conscious business leaders like yourself can join our community of listeners. If you'd like to connect with me further, you'll find me hanging out on LinkedIn at Charlotte Chipperfield. Come join me there or check out charlottechipperfield.com for more resources and to learn more about holistic marketing.